0: This podcast has been developed for financial advisor use and provides general information only and does not take into account any particular individual's objectives, financial situations or needs. BT Investment Talk by BT Investment Solutions is a monthly podcast produced exclusively for Australian financial advisors. Our investment experts, together with some of the world's leading fund managers, will provide thought leadership on a wide range of investment topics. Investment Talk is all about looking beyond the numbers, helping advisors cut through the noise, enabling them to have meaningful investment and portfolio construction conversations with their clients. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this installment of Invest Talk. My name is Michelle Heinrich, and I am the BTIS State Sales Manager for New South Wales and ACT. I am here to support you and your clients around the full suite of active and index solutions on offer from BTIS. Well, today, I'm incredibly pleased to be joined by Martina Yang from the BTIS Investment Team and Prasad Patkar from Platypus Asset Management. We'll deep dive the BTIS Australian Equity Investment Strategy and, more importantly, the role that Platypus plays in this sector. Well, welcome, Martina and Prasad.
1: Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks for having us, Michelle. Well, before I hand over to our two experts, here is a bit more about Martina and Prasad. Martina is the Assistant Portfolio Manager for equities within our equities investment team. She focuses on the investment manager research, portfolio construction and the ongoing monitoring of our Australian equity and property securities strategies. This covers both the Advanced Managed Funds and the BT Core Series Separately Managed Accounts. Martina has been with us since February 2019. Prasad is a long standing investment professional and he's currently head of qualitative investments at Platypus. He joined the team in February 2008 after roles as the chief investment officer for many family offices, having had responsibility for the performance of all asset classes, including listed equities, alternative investments, property, and private equity investments. Platypus was actually appointed to the Core Series Australian Equity Strategy in April of 2022, and has managed an active sleeve for the Advanced Australian Shares Strategy since late 2018. Well, Martina, BT has had a long-standing reputation as an active multi-manager in most asset classes. Can you share with us some of the key tenets of our approach within Australian equities?
2: Sure. So I'll start off with saying that. Uh, active management works well in Aussie equities. When I run the rolling three-year excess returns of the median long-only Aussie equities manager against the ASX 300 over a 15-year time period to the end of July, the results have been positive for about 89% of the time. I'm specifically using the rolling three-year numbers here because that better aligns to our longer-term investment horizon. Now, uh, of that universe of managers, we're aiming to pick those that we believe are skillful and it can repeatedly apply that skill in a manner that's consistent with its stated investment philosophy and process. Now, that's important because when we select the manager for our portfolio, we have a role or function in mind that that manager is intended to play. So, our analysis and due diligence prior to selecting the manager is not only about firming up our conviction in the investment team, the process and overall skill, but also forming an understanding of the typical investment characteristics of this manager and how much that can vary depending on different market environments. And this all comes together in the portfolio construction process when we set the strategic weight for the manager. Because at the end of the day, we want to make sure that the risk we're taking is intended and compensated. It would not be ideal to have the outcomes of our portfolio predicated on the success or failure of just one manager or other risk or style factor. Uh, Specific to Australian equities multi-manager portfolios, We are mindful that it is a fairly homogenous asset class. Because of the smaller universe and concentration risk in the index, you're going to get some degree of stock overlap when you combine all the managers. So the task is to really really try and understand what this manager is doing, how they're doing it, and what distinguishes them relative to their peer group. We just need to be really clear on what that additional element that manager brings to the portfolio.
0: Thanks. It's certainly great to hear that we absolutely are following an active approach in this sector, particularly given the volatility we've seen in the markets over calendar 2022. Now, without stealing any of Prasad's thunder, what role does Platypus actually play in this sector for for BT investment solutions?
2: So, just echoing some of my uh, earlier statements, uh, we want to make sure that the risk we're taking is intended and compensated. Investment styles like value and growth will have periods of out and underperformance, performance. And these movements can be quite extreme as we saw over the last two years. By targeting a complementary manager lineup that provides us diversification across styles, we attempt to smooth out the return profile and avoid the risk of being overly exposed to some underperforming investment approach. So to this end in our portfolio, Platypus is our preferred manager through which we gain exposure to these growth risk factors. Uh, Platypus is focused on finding companies that have underappreciated sustainable earnings growth. The market inefficiency they're trying to exploit here is just misjudgment in the quality, quantity, and or duration of earnings. But I won't go into too much detail here because I would love to give Prasad the opportunity to bring this all to life as he talks through the portfolio. And with that, I think it's always important for our clients to know who the investor is behind the strategy we are backing. So thank you again, Prasad, for joining us on this podcast today. Could you give our listeners an introduction to yourself, your investing journey up until now, and the key influences that shaped you as an investor today?
1: Sure, Martina. Thank thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, um, I was um, uh, lucky enough to have been born and raised in a family of entrepreneurs and investors. So very early in life, I, I got exposure to um, concepts of business and commerce and I remember my mum uh, explaining the concept of full employment and inflation to my brother and I when we were very young. So sort of weird conversations to have, I suspect, but, but there was something that we found fascinating. And I stayed with that interest uh, in terms of my education. So I, I stayed with commerce, accounting and business uh, in my higher education, which is what, what brought me to Australia some 25 years ago. Um, and then post my, my, my graduation from uh, University of New South Wales, Masters in Business program, I was uh, lucky enough to have met and worked for some really great mentors and bosses who took me under their wing and taught me uh, what good businesses look like and how they are operated, how they are um, run, um, and how you know one can assess what, what makes a good business and what doesn't. Uh, more importantly, though, I think they allowed me to make mistakes and learn from them. And, and that journey continues. That, that learning process is ongoing and never stops. Um, and I've continued to ride my luck in terms of being around great people, be it uh, colleagues, my family, and my friends. So may 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 that continue for, for a long period of time. But that's in a, in a, in, a, in short, my my sort of um, my um, introduction to myself and, and how I got into the
2: into the world of investing. Thanks, Rizad. I think that's a good segue into hearing about Platypus as a firm. Uh, could you perhaps describe Platypus to asset management, including the broader investment philosophy and, and the strategies that you and the team manage?
1: Yeah, sure. So, uh, Platypus was established uh, now, some 23 years ago, by uh, Donald Williams and Nick Wright. Uh, the two founders of the firm now have, have um, retired from the firm. And, and now, so the firm's gone through a sort of a generational transition over the last few years, is now fully owned by Australian Unity, uh, the Melbourne based mutual. Uh, who was our joint venture partner for uh, almost 15 years prior to them taking over the full ownership of the business. Uh, The team, both investment and operational team, have very long tenures with the firm. Um, The diversity of background and experience is a notable feature of of Platypus, I would say. Uh, The shared purpose of serving our investors and passion for investing is what brings us together and binds us together. So that's a quick synopsis on the firm in terms of the investment philosophy. Uh, we believe that stocks that grow their earnings over long periods of time tend to outperform the market. Uh, so we actively look for, and, and, and I think you alluded to this, uh, Martina, in, 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 your, in your introduction, um, that uh, we look, that's one of, one of the key areas of focus for us to exploit that inefficiency in, in, in terms of assessing the quantity, quality, and duration of a company's earnings vis-à-vis market expectations. Uh, but the other feature of our, our philosophical basis is that we believe that constructing portfolios in an index-unaware manner Uh, gives the investors the best risk-reward outcomes, especially in a market like Australia, which is so top-heavy. By that, I mean the top 10 stocks in Australia are almost half the market, which is also another thing that you talked about earlier in in your introduction. Um, And in terms of the products or the the strategies that we manage in the firm, there are three. Uh, The Platypus Australian Equities Fund is the one in which BTIS has exposure to. And that's a a portfolio of between 20 and 40 growth stocks that I manage with my team of five analysts. Uh, And we have two quantitatively managed products as well that uh, my colleague Peter Brook and his team manage.
2: Great, thanks. I'm going to focus on the um, Australian equity strategy, given that's the one we invest in. So, 2020 was a strong year of alpha for many managers with a growth style bias like yourselves. Growth stocks uh, have had a solid run for many years, supported in part by an extended period of low and falling interest rates. Now, with rates on the rise, this has instead been a headwind. How would you reflect on the performance of the strategy year to date relative to your own expectations? And how are you positioning the portfolio to deal with the current market environment?
1: Martina, um, you're 100% correct. Growth as a style has worked well. Uh, globally because of supportive environment of low economic growth and, and low interest rates. That said, our colleagues on the quantitative side tell me that there is evidence to suggest that growth as a factor has worked well in Australia for a much longer time frame. Uh, some factors tend to do well in some markets. Uh, for instance, Japan has historically been a very strong value market. Uh, but that, that top-down view might be a topic for another podcast with Peter Brook and Gareth Hurst, our PMs on our, on our quant side. Uh, just reflecting back on the year, uh, going back to your question, it has, it has been a tough year for our style and for, for our performance, which has lagged the benchmark um, significantly. Uh, for, for the first four months of this calendar year were particularly brutal. Uh, interest rates rose, as you know. Um, there was pressure on valuations, on especially on the higher valued growth stocks that, that we tend to be long in our portfolio. Um, also, economy was booming. So cyclicals like banks and resources were rallying strongly. Uh, Now, the type of growth, the type of stocks that we tend to hold in our portfolio uh, grow their earnings without the need of a strong economic environment or an economic cycle. I mean, think of companies like CSL, ResMed, Goodman Group, IDP Education. What what tends to then happen is when when the economy is booming um, and and mining companies are doubling and quadrupling their profits, companies such such as CSL, ResMed, they tend to sort of grow their earnings at a slower and steadier pace. And they kind of look pedestrian in this kind of hot environment. So they lag a bit. Um, and then there's the, there was the rising interest rates environment, also caused a lot of pressure on the valuations of these companies, um, such as CSL and, and REA and ResMed, um, which tend to be at a, they tend to trade at a premium to the market. So there was a sort of a pinzer move um, in the market against uh, the stocks that we tend to hold, both from a valuation point of view and the, and the fact that their earnings were kind of lagging in a slower and steadier state. Versus some of the cyclical companies. So the first four months of the year were particularly brutal. Uh, since about mid May, though, things have changed somewhat. So investors have now started to think about the economic activity starting to see, you know, coming off the boil. Um, there's a, there are concerns around recessions and, and, and economic slowdowns generally and globally. So the, the heat has come out of the cyclical sector somewhat. And also, the interest rate environment is a little bit more stable than than the the big spike that we had in the first few months of the calendar year. So it's 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 been a little bit of a relief since May. Um, it's it, the headwinds that the portfolio experienced in the first four months of the year have abated somewhat. But how long that period lasts is is impossible to call. Um, and so we we're, we're taking some some uh, we've taken some action already in the portfolio since the start of the year, and and we're continuing to monitor the situation carefully. So in terms of the action that we took uh, from the start of this year uh, was that we high graded the portfolio Uh, by by that. I mean that for every stock to be held in the portfolio, especially for the larger, the weights, uh, larger positions, uh, we had three criteria that we considered for, for holding the stock and holding large positions. And, and they were as follows Uh, the business must have pricing power. That's number one. Number two, the business must have a strong balance sheet. And number three, if possible, have reasonable valuation. Now, in, in in some instances, we have had to compromise on the third criterion, as in we have had some companies. Uh, we still hold some companies that have uh, a bit of valuation risk in the portfolio, uh, in 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 the in their, in the share prices rather. Uh, but but we haven't compromised on the first and the second criteria of quality, quality of earnings through pricing power and quality of balance sheets. So in 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 complying in sort of uh, implementing that that plan. Uh, we've exited earlier in the year some of the non-profitable early-stage tech businesses. Uh, we had positions in Square, SiteMinder, Phineas, and Ordinate. Uh, these positions were were uh, removed, and we've added to more defensive, uh, stronger uh, uh, growth companies that that are um, that we've held in the past and continue to hold now, such as CSL ResMed, REA, Efficient Medical Healthcare, and Goodman Group.
2: Thanks, Asad. So the point on valuations is quite interesting, actually. So the valuations on some of these growth stocks often becomes a point of criticism by some market participants. Um, how do you make that assessment into whether you're paying a fair and reasonable price for a given stock? You made mention just now that you are still holding some stocks with um, some valuation risk. Could you provide us with some stock examples perhaps?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, uh, Martina, we use a 12 month forward price earnings ratio of a stock as a primary valuation tool. And we also do a discounted cash flow as a secondary metric. Now, what we tend to do is we compare a stock's PE to its historical range to get a sense of potential valuation risk that is embedded in the share price. Uh, We tend to control the position size of a a, a stock, in a stock, um, if the valuation risk is particularly exaggerated at a point in time. Now, there are times when growth stocks tend to become overvalued, and they optically look overvalued, and over time, their earnings grow into that valuation. So what, in terms of trying to make an assessment of what is fair and reasonable when it comes to valuation, it's a, it is a matter of judgment, taking into account the quantity, quality, and duration of an earnings growth profile of a company, especially vis-a-vis what might be broadly expected in the market. So as an example, we have controlled the position size in a name like uh, Domino's over the years. Where we might have said the position size has grown throughout performance, but the valuation risk embedded in the in the stock is quite high, and we'd we'd cut the position size back to its original weighting, and we've done that over uh, over the long period of time that we've held a company like Domino's, we've done it many times over. Now, if the valuation risk wasn't a particular issue, we would we would we would be happy to carry a larger position in that in that name. Fisher and Paykel Healthcare has been a similar story over the years. It's been constrained at a much lower position size because the valuation risk is quite significant. So we are quite conscious of valuation and the criticism around valuation for growth stocks is valid in many circumstances. But it's not a um, we don't think it, it's a it's a one size fits all approach. Uh, the the specifics of the the earnings profile of the company, um, the quality, duration, and the quantity of the earnings need to be taken into account.
2: On earnings a common narrative that started to emerge towards the end of 2021 was that many of these COVID winner stocks in 2020 that were on the right side of change had over-earned. So to what extent do you agree with the statement, especially in relation to the companies that you've chosen to invest in?
1: Uh, I think that's a a fair observation, uh, Martina, in the sense that COVID accelerated quite a number of structural trends that were in place pre the pandemic. So in that context, a number of structural growth stories um, saw their earnings accelerate even further through the pandemic. And therefore, there was an element of bring forward, if you like, of the future earnings or a bit of over-earning, as you put it. Um, in, in, and, and that has created a number of distortions in the, in the financial statements of these, these companies. As an example, uh, again, Fish & Paykel Healthcare would be a good example where uh, Fish & Paykel Healthcare used to sell about $100 million worth of hardware a year and about $600 million worth of uh, consumables in the hospital segment. Um, through the two years of pandemic, they sold $800 million worth of hardware. So, eight years worth of hardware was effectively sold in two years. Now, that hardware has to be, has to be uh, demand has to be stimulated around that hardware for the consumables to catch up, which is, con- and consumables uh, uh, for, for Fish and Pycle Healthcare is the recurring uh, revenue stream, if you like. Think, think in terms of uh, Gillette, razors, and, and the cartridges. The hardware is the the, 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 the razor and, and the cartridges are the consumables. So they've sold a lot of hardware. Now they are working hard to 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 um, stimulate the demand around around that hardware to be able to get the consumable sales back up again. So there's there's an example of a of a it's a, it's a nice problem to have if you if you think about it because uh, the the hardware is in place and and the 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 job of stimulating that demand is is relatively. Uh, i wouldn't call it simpler but it's uh, it, there is a straight line path there's a pathway to getting getting that job done so um, that's an example of a, a covid distortion if you like or a covid um, a bring forward now we don't mind holding company like fish and Plycal in the portfolio notwithstanding the fact that there is a bit of earnings distortion that has to be worked through in their in their in their numbers uh, but it's a structurally strong business and and we think they'll get that that, that demand back up to trend on the consumables and, ex, and exploit the, the advantageous position they find themselves in with the, with the installed base of hardware having grown so much. Now, the other side of the example is that uh, a, a pure online retailer, um, and there's a, quite a few that are listed in Australia, have found that their um, COVID wins were temporary. So when everyone was in a lockdown and people had uh, nowhere to go and not many avenues to spend their money, online retailers... Uh, had a, had a great time. I mean, their, their sales went through the roof. Their customer acquisition costs fell through the floor because they didn't have to spend any money on marketing. People, consumers were kind of trapped into into buying from them, and all that reversed when 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 the lockdowns ended, and and uh, sales then came off the boil, and they had to start spending more money to retain the customers that they'd acquired through the through the pandemic. Um, and we had a small position in a company called Red Bubble, which we divested in January, which is an example of COVID wins. Uh, being a lot less stickier than what might have been thought through the pandemic, so those are the two extreme ends of the example, and there's a lot in between. I mean, retailers are a good example of COVID wins that may have to be digested over the next um, few months, maybe you know six, six, twelve, eighteen months, uh, and even a high quality retailer like JB Hi-Fi, for instance, um, has has had a, a lot of benefit out of COVID, and those and their earnings will go backwards to some degree as 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 the COVID wins normalize, but still a high quality business and uh, remains on our radar. Mm-hmm.
2: If we just stay on this topic of earnings a little bit longer, uh, reporting season in Australia just wrapped up last month. What was your interpretation of the results and which sectors or industries surprised you the most, both on the upside and downside?
1: Yeah, well, in terms of the reporting season uh, in August, it was relatively well delivered to expectations. So there was not a uh, not a huge amount of uh, problem at all, given all the the macro environment uh, that that has been in, in conversations leading into the into the reporting season. So in most instances, uh, uh, companies haven't yet reported or or uh, uh, experienced uh, deteriorating operating environment. But there is a recognition that things could change, given the monetary conditions have tightened a lot and cost of living pressures have have increased, and, and both those might have a lagged impact on 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 the on the economy and the consumer. Uh, In terms of trading updates that will come through during the AGM season starting October, November, therefore, they will be watched very closely and they they will provide some sort of a guide on how fiscal 23 uh, pans out from from an earnings point of view. Uh, From a top-down perspective, the fiscal 23 EPS growth estimates have come back a bit. So at the start of the reporting season, the expectation was for a 5% growth in EPS for fiscal 23 over 22. And now that has come back to just under 4%. Um, and in that context, materials uh, with lower commodity prices and industrials with some cost pressures and margin compression have been the main culprits on the downside, uh, offset to some extent by financials. Um, and in terms of thematic observations for August uh, reporting season, uh, I mean, the, 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 um, the cost of debt is starting to bite in some, uh, in some leveraged, uh, unhedged uh, companies. So the importance of strong balance sheets that I talked about earlier is even more vital in this environment. Um, Operating costs are still elevated for most industrials, but they're starting to see some sort of light at the end of the tunnel, if you like, uh, that they may be peaking. Uh, COVID-related disruptions are in the rearview mirror, and and hopefully that stays that way. I mean, absenteeism and so on has has become a lot less problematic for, for companies. And retailers are still reporting very strong numbers, like I mentioned earlier. I mean, they haven't seen any sign that consumers showing um, any any exhaustion, uh, but that could that could change. And and credit quality amongst banks, which is a big sector for Australia, uh, remains benign so far. So again, uh, could be a brief function of a lagged impact from tighter monetary conditions. Uh, that remains to be seen. On the downside, the 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 one uh, downside uh, the surprise uh, shouldn't be that big a surprise given the environment, I suppose. But but those businesses that have large exposures to Europe. Have seen problems. Uh, they, they have experienced a tremendous energy crunch, as you know, um, and and also the consumers under tremendous pressure. So um, any any business with large exposure to Europe has has called out those those concerns. From a portfolio's perspective, and the reporting season was was reasonably strong. Uh, not as good as the Feb 22 reporting season, I must admit. Uh, that said, the price action in, in in August was a lot more favorable than, than what we'd experienced in February. So it was uh, a, a benign. Um, reporting season for us um, on the on the uh, downside I'd, I'd call out domino's as being a, a weak result um, especially in france uh, again that exposure to europe's been a bit bit problematic for Domino's. Uh, ARb was a couple of percentage points below our expectations but nothing nothing uh, too untoward uh, and fish and michael um, uh, had have, have called out uh, a much lower first half earnings expectations um, uh, they are experiencing some destocking uh, from their from their clients who the hospital customers who bought a lot of stock um consumable stock in um, in anticipation of covid surges that haven't been as as uh, intense uh, as expected so those were the three uh, on the negative side on the positive side we had quite a few actually so wise La lavisa reese were the, were the notable um uh, surprises on the plus but but there were very strong results from idp education ResMed. Goodman Group, Pinnacle, and Promedicus, and and there were quite a uh, and there were a few that were in line with expectations like REA, CSL, and Cochlear. So reasonably good reporting season for the portfolio and for the market.
2: Yeah, over the last two years, uh, I guess some companies have been, uh, or the the outlook statements from the companies have been fairly dry given the um, uncertainty that they face. But now it seems like management's starting to put out uh, outlook statements again and guidance. So how do the outlook statements? feed into your forward-looking expectations for domestic equity markets going forward? Uh,
1: I think, Martina, the, the, uh, the uh, outlook is still a bit uncertain uh, for most of, most of the um, uh, ASX-listed companies I and mean, businesses that have been able to grow their earnings and, and uh, revenues irrespective of the health of the economy have been a bit more forthcoming with their guidance for fiscal 23. I mean, CSL, for instance, has put out a, a reasonably good guidance for 23, uh, but they have good visibility. Uh, and those are those businesses are few and far between. Most of the companies that are exposed to uh, the economy, um, including uh, high-quality retailers like JB Hi-Fi, have withheld guidance uh, in August. Uh, we expect them to give some commentary around um, the AGM season. Um, and, and I think they will firm up that, that sort of guidance. If they do provide one in, at the AGM, they'll firm that up as the year progresses. So the, the visibility is still a bit, a bit problematic. Uh, even uh, some other high-quality retailers like like James Hardy, who gave guidance back in February, have had to downgrade that guidance because you know things have changed very rapidly in the in 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 the first half of this calendar year. So it's I would still say that that guidance is not as easily forthcoming as as it was pre-pandemic, and and it's uh, it's still a little bit more uh, opaque. Um, and and uh, in in general, uh, we think that the 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 um, fiscal twenty three. Uh, uh, expectations there's there's more downside risk to those expectations because we're still in 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 an environment where some of these lagged impacts from from tighter monetary conditions and cost of living pressures are yet to be felt and and I think the conventional wisdom on this front is that they will work they will come through with a lag and therefore things will get tougher before they get better so um I think from from our point of view we we are we are using that that three-pronged approach um, from on a, on a bottom-up basis you know the companies that have to have defendable earnings which come through through pricing power in an, in an environment where 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 costs uh, input costs are, are still a challenge so protecting the margins through pricing uh, and ability to be able to do that is important uh, and and you have to have strong balance sheets because um, in this environment it, it, it you know anything any form of dislocation could be instantaneous and, and you don't want to be in a a precarious position on, on that front. And again, uh, sensitivity to valuations, which we've discussed. I mean, we'll keep that front and central of, of, um, of consideration list. So that's the approach we're taking. And we're taking a relatively conservative approach in, in how we are positioning the portfolio in terms of defensive um, growth companies.
0: Well, thank you, Martina and Prasad, for your insights into your respective Australian share strategies. I mean, there's no doubt investor funds are in safe hands given the level of research and analysis that goes into your respective investment decisions. And, you know, just providing a bit more topicality with the volatility currently at play in the stock market, there's no doubt that this active approach will continue to focus on delivering long-term performance in a risk-adjusted manner. So, So, thank you so much for sharing those insights. Thank Um, you,
1: Michelle. Thank you, Martina.
0: Thanks, guys. So for our podcast listeners, if you are looking for uh, further details around Platypus or the Advance or BT Australian Share Strategy, please do visit us at www.bt.com.au forward slash professional forward slash solutions or contact your state-based representative, including myself. I do hope that you found this podcast of value. Um, Please give us feedback. We do appreciate it so that we know we can continue to provide other topics that you find useful in your client conversations. So thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.